Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 203 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How are you? Good. Starting out the month of June after this month, we'll be halfway through 2023. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. And of course, the weather here in Ohio went from mild to wild. Yeah. Now it's, we haven't had rain in three weeks. And it's scorching hot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so last uh, last birthday for me as kidless. I always want to say when I'm telling people, like when we went, when me and Kenzie went on our last trip before we had uh, our baby in, in August, I always want to say our last trip is like single parents, but that's not the right phrase, and I yeah. can't get that out of my head. Yeah. Kidless is the right kidless, phrase. Kidless, yes. Last night was a very surreal experience for me. I went home, and uh, my youngest, uh, Evelyn, we were teaching her to ride a bike last night. And it was very surreal for me. This is the last time, like my own kid and right. teaching her to ride a bike. And How'd she do? She's a champ. She did great. I have a feeling she'll catch on pretty quickly. Yeah. Next thing you know, she'll be charging uh, other people to teach them. I mean, she's just <laughs> a complete savage. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Well, as always, before we begin, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. Uh, The numbers are as of the market close on May 31st, so the month-to-date numbers are for the full month of May, and this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index was up 0.2% for the month and is up 8.9% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 3.5% for the month and down 0.7% year-to-date. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 5.8% for the month and up 23.6% for the year. The Small Cap Russell 2000 Index down 0.8% for the month and down 0.3% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 3.5% for the month and up 4.9% for the year. Three month treasury rate at 5.52%, two year treasury rate at 4.4%, and the 10 year treasury rate at 3.64%. Moving on to big headlines, current events from the week. I think obviously, Matt, the, uh, the biggie or the, the topic du jour, so to speak, has been the debt ceiling debates. Absolutely. Um, and I think last night, uh, the House passed a resolution. Which and- was going to be the hard one. Which was the hard one. The hard place for it to pass. Right, because the Republicans control the House. uh, Now passed over to the Senate. So hopefully sometime uh, this week that gets resolved. We move past that because I think Secretary Yellen actually said as of June 1st, the government is projected to to not meet its obligations. So uh, today would be a good day to get a deal passed. Yes, it would. Scraping the bottom of the barrel, I bet, from a money standpoint, right? (laughs) Right. Right. And this isn't the, and then we have more uh, topics to discuss about the debt ceiling, but this isn't the first time this has happened, right? This has happened several times in the past, you know, 60, 70, 80 years. And in one of my pieces, we'll see if we duped each other, duplicate it. I have a piece about how the market acts after a debt ceiling's been raised. Okay. I have a little bit of a piece about that. So we'll see. Okay. Here we go. 
Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. The first thing I had was a blog post from Ben Carlson on May 19th titled, What's the Best Long-Term Investment? So he says, each year Gallup performs a survey that asks a group of Americans what the best long-term investment is. <laughs> Following options are stocks, bonds, cash, gold, and real estate. Do you know what topped the list this year, or did you peak? Uh, I peaked, but I already knew it wasn't going to be stocks. Okay. Well, let's ask our intern, Jack. Out of stocks, bonds, cash, gold, or real estate, what do you think the most Americans said was the best long-term investment? Wow, he's smart. It is real estate. So real estate topped the list uh, in the most recent uh, Gallup poll. Uh, Coming in second actually was gold, and then coming in third, stocks and mutual funds. But the funny thing, and the thing I wanted to point out here, Matt, is that gold was the number one uh, investment on the survey in 2011. And can you take a guess what happened to gold? In 2011, pretty much right after this survey came out. It got hot. Everyone wanted it. So gold peaked the exact same month. So Jenna will throw this chart up on the show notes for everybody, but it shows uh, the S&P 500 ETF in purple, and it shows uh, the uh, Spider Gold Shares ETF in uh, yellow. And in 2011, that's when gold uh, pretty much had peaked. S&P 500 index since that date is up 333%, gold up only 6.94%. So I remember in the early um, period there, early 2010s, you know, everyone was a gold expert. So for example, everyone was dissecting these different types of gold investments, where the gold was held, like the, like the, uh, the investment you just mentioned, they hold their gold in London at mm-hmm. this vault. It's like everyone knew all that stuff at that time. That would, should have been another indicator. Right. Right. So and, you know, now the question is, is real estate going to follow suit? And I think it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility, given the rapid rise in real estate prices that we've had over the past couple of years and where rates are at right now. So uh, one other thing to uh, throw out there, uh, Gallup did another study on U.S. stock ownership. Uh, and it said, do you personally or jointly with a spouse have any money invested in the stock market right now, either an individual stock, a stock mutual fund, or in a self-directed 401k or IRA? So Jack, again, the percentage of Americans that took this survey, how many said, what percentage do you think own stock? Between one and 100. 58. 58%, which is down, at least since the survey started, from its peak, it looks like, in 1998, which was a little over 60%. So hasn't moved much. Hit a low in 2016. Like. Almost hit, 50. Yeah, hit a low in 2016, also in 2013, coming off the great financial crisis. People had wanted nothing to do with stocks, obviously. Uh, moving on to more talk about the uh, debt ceiling. Second thing I had was a post from Nick Majuli on May 16th, titled, What Happens If the U.S. Defaults on His Debt? For the record, I don't think this is going to happen. I'm just conveying what the possibility is if the U.S. and the ramifications if the U.S. were to default on his debt. I think this would be a good exercise. Okay. So he says, on January 19th of this year, the U.S. federal government hit its $31.38 trillion debt ceiling and has since been unable to borrow more money. 
To get by, the U.S. Treasury has resorted to extraordinary measures, including redeeming investments from government pension funds to continue funding its operations. Unfortunately, these extraordinary measures are dwindling, and as U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently noted, unless Congress raises or suspends the debt limit, the U.S. government may run out of money as early as June 1st, which is today. Just don't pay the politicians. They'll pass it instantly. Yeah, that's a perfect way to do it, in my opinion. Um, with such a dire warning, many investors have begun to wonder what happens if the U.S. defaults on its debt. Though this scenario remains unlikely, it's important to understand the potential consequences of a default and how they could impact you. Uh, so number one is an actual default. And this occurs, Matt, when obviously a borrower fails to make a required principal, principal or interest payment to a lender. So for yes. example, Matt, if Matt owns $10,000 worth of U.S. Treasury bonds, Yep. The government doesn't pay Matt the interest he's due, due on, on time. They're due on June 2nd tomorrow. They then can't pay me. That's a default, yep. right? So in the case of the U.S. or every any sovereign nation, a default occurs if the government is unable or unwilling to make payments on its debt. Um, and then the second aspect of this, Matt, is what we would call a technical default. And he says, unlike an actual default, when a government fails to make payments on its bonds, a technical default occurs if the government fails to pay for its other obligations, even if bond payments were made on time. Example of this uh, would be um, delaying Social Security payments and delaying pay to government employees, right? Okay. Um, a couple other possible outcomes. He lists uh, global financial turmoil. Uh, I think there'd be a major loss in confidence in the U.S. government around the world. Obviously, a possible recession with unemployment projecting to rise from 3.4% to 7% or even as high as 12% in some estimates. So far, all sounds reasonable. Rising interest rates, uh, the which, U.S. dollar uh, losing a large amount of its value. Which is why the three-month is already at 5.5% right now. Correct. A uh, lower credit rating for the U.S., uh, which would make future borrowing for our government more expensive. Uh, and then impaired government functions. So like I said earlier, uh, delayed Social Security payments, delayed government pay, um, you know, that could have a huge could effect. Could you imagine on, if people didn't get their Social Security payment? Oh, yeah, it'd be an uproar. I don't think they're not that happen. I know. Oh, of course. I'm just right. suggesting. Oh, yeah, it'd be brutal. It'd be political suicide. So again, do I think that's going to happen? No, I don't. I think there's going to be a deal that gets reached uh, hopefully this week. So we'll wait and see on that. I appreciate the exercise. Good piece there from Nick. Yeah. Uh, last thing I had, Matt, was a tweet from Walter Deemer on May 16th of this year. Uh, General will throw this tweet up on the YouTube video. He says, historical note. During the 2011 debt ceiling crisis, most of the damage was done after an agreement to raise the debt ceiling was reached. So Walter, excuse me, has a chart of the S&P 500, the red line on the date that the um, debt ceiling was uh, agreement was reached uh, to be raised, and the market kind of fell apart after that. Again, disclaimer, I'm not calling for that to happen, but just because we get a resolution doesn't mean the market's going to go up by 10%. Correct. You know, I think 2011, you just had this hangover effect where the market was just making back gains in, you know, from March of 09. Rest of that year was good for the market. 2010 was good. And you kind of had this hangover effect, I felt like, in uh, 2011 and 2012. So I think that was more relational to that. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I'll hand it off to you. 
It's interesting because I do have, I'm going to build upon what Walter did though with uh, a bigger data set that I think you're going to enjoy. Okay. Okay. So the first piece I have is a look on forward revenue guidance on the S&P 500 index. Okay. Now this is from Seth Golden. He's a chief market strategist at Phenom Group. And um, this is going to burst a lot of bears bubbles. It's going to burst a lot of narratives out there in the marketplace right now. Make some people upset. I hope I do. So this tweet is from May 22nd. The forward, and I'm going to quote specifically, Mark, forward three month positive guidance for the S&P 500 index corporate revenues is at the highest level since 2021. This is not, this is where it gets controversial. This is not, and this is what he's saying, this is not indicative of a recession, contracting margins, which everybody's talking about, or contracting EPS, earnings per share, which also is everything everyone's talking about. Remember, such guidance is offered halfway through the second quarter period as earnings season is concluded. And just to put it out there, forward revenue guidance, it's like when these companies report earnings, a lot of these companies say, hey, for the next quarter or for the rest of the year, this is what we think our revenue is going to be. And that's what they mean by forward guidance. Thank you, sir. Which a lot of times when you go through uncertain periods, people will put more weight when these companies report earnings, they'll put more weight into, hey, I really don't care what you just did. Uh, you had good earnings. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what you're going to be doing. Right. And that makes sense. Why? Because the market's forward looking, right? That's right. So Jenna's going to put this chart up uh, that uh, that Seth had. And this chart goes back to 1997. And again, it shows the percentage of S&P 500 companies with positive three month uh, percentage changes in their forward looking revenues. And guess what? It's rebounding and it, it's some pretty good numbers. So then I went a little deeper. Okay. And I wanted to look at what these estimates were uh, for Q2, okay? What earnings came in at and what people were expecting on March 31st, okay? So in essence, we just got these earnings reports for Q1. And when those numbers were projected at the end of March and what actually happened, okay? So Jenna, uh, we'll put this second chart up and what it's gonna illustrate is at the end of March, the analyst Wall Street community was thinking that earnings were going to be growing by 1.9%. When the actual numbers came out for Q1, the final number came in at positive 4.1%. Okay, drastically higher, double. Mm -hmm. And then when you start dissecting these different sectors, he uh, this chart is from FactSet is the source. Um, it breaks it down by all the S&P 500 index sectors, Mark. And you can look at the ones that really surprised and the ones that disappointed. And what's kind of kooky here is, you know, technology as a whole, you know, they expected that to be negative 4.2%. That came in at negative 2.6 as an example. Um, you know, consumer discretionary, positive 6.6 .6 came in at positive 9. Again, a lot of upside surprises. Kind of seems that the benchmark was relatively low. So... Just interesting facts. Next, my second piece is, it's been seven months since the S&P 500 index made a new low. What happens next when you compare this to history? Now, I wanna give my compliance disclaimer because this is an important one. Remember, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. I'm just making comparison to history data points. 
This piece is from Bespoke Investment Group on May 26th. And I'm going to read this verbatim. As in life, the worst enemy of a bear market is time. After making a low, the longer the index goes without making another one, the more likely it is that the bear market has ended and a new bull market has started. Updating a study, this is bespoke, that they did in April, in the post-World War II period, there have been 13 other periods in which the S&P 500 declined over 20% from a 52-week high, and then went at least seven months without breaching or creating a new low. In this table now that Jenna will put up for our YouTube viewers, this will of course be in our show notes, they summarized each of these periods, Mark. The table's gonna show the dates of each period along with how the index performed at various intervals over the next year. And the chart shows the performance over the following year for each period. While the performance over the following week has been weaker than average, performance over the following one, three, six, and 12 months has been better than the long-term average, as well as more consistent to the upside. One year later, the only time the S&P 500 index was lower was in 2001. And everyone knows what happened at that time. Mm -hmm. Okay? Tech bubble. You know, so, you know, you gotta just, have this whole realm aspect of, you know, there's a lot of people out there calling that this is a bear market rally. This is a move within a larger downtrend. And I love what Bespoke said, as in life, the worst enemy of a bear market is time. I just find it very interesting. And um, I thought the data was pretty good here. Yeah, that's great. Just adds, you know, to the data points. I think we've been mentioning all year that all the data that we have indicates that it's setting up to be a, a pretty good year. And remember, the market's forward-looking. Correct. My next piece, also from Bespoke on May 26, I mean, had some killer research on May 26. I know you uh, you looked at it as well, Mark. How does the market do after a debt ceiling is raised? So looking back historically since 1952, that's when the five-day trading week began, the debt ceiling has been raised or suspended 86 separate times, Mark. As for what the S&P 500 has done in the wake of those actions, typically stocks have moved higher, but returns not particularly impressive relative to the norm. Next, Jenna's gonna show the charts. It'll be in our show notes for our YouTube viewers and for our traditional podcast listeners. Again, it'll be in all of our social media sites. It's going to show what the returns are um, since 1952 for all periods and after the debt ceiling was raised or suspended. And traditionally about one year later, the market's up somewhere between eight to 9%. Six months later, about three and a half to 4%. So not necessarily a market killer, quote unquote, when this happens. Again, past performance, not indicative of future results. We're just looking at these data points and trying to have a comparison. Uh, any comments? No, it just doesn't really seem to be any like statistically significant data to show that. Either way. Right. Either Correct. way, right? So last but not least, I have a fourth item that's gonna be very quick. This is a follow-up from last week. Um, Aaron was um, on the show with me, Mark, and we were talking about home ownership, and the topic came up about the cost of owning versus renting. Mm -hmm. And I was verbally referencing a chart at that time that was indicating that of all these major metropolitan areas, and it's like well over 25 of them, I made the comment to Aaron, there's only four 
where it's more economically smart to buy than rent. For cities? For cities. For cities in the U.S. For cities, metropolitan area cities. Okay. So this is, the, I, I pulled that data so we could share it. It was from Liz Ann Saunders. She's, she's the chief investment strategist at Schwab. She had a tweet on May 23rd. And this is in reference again to what I was talking to Aaron about last week. She's referencing this data from Redfin. This will be in our show notes. Jenna will put it up for our YouTube viewers. And again, it shows, quote, where is the home ownership premium the highest? And it's looking at the estimated monthly premium of a median US mortgage cost versus renting. Okay, and you're going to see that in all these major metropolitan areas, the only ones that it makes sense financially to buy right now, Detroit, Philadelphia, Cleveland, and Houston. The rest of them, financial only, numbers, they're saying it makes sense to rent. Yeah, and again, I, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the show before, but I think everyone was just kind of uh, taught at a young age that, you know, part of becoming an adult at some age is, is buying a house and getting a mortgage and, and owning it, right? Owning property. And just for some people, that might not be the best idea. And there's a lot more that, that comes with home ownership than just the mortgage payment, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, especially in, in the type of housing market that we're in, it's really hard to justify owning versus renting right now. Um, so this is this is really interesting. Thought it's interesting that Cleveland's in here. And then we're Megan, one of uh, one of our JWM staff members living in Houston. Uh, makes sense to, to own rather than to rent. But this is a pretty, pretty telling. Um, and see, there were there were charts, which I'm going to be interested to see what this looks like in like five years. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really interesting to me is there were places where I was like, ooh, it has to be a lot more expensive to own and it wasn't and vice versa. So, for example, not not too far into where it makes sense to uh, buy was places like West Palm Beach in Fort Lauderdale. They were still on the lower end of where the economics could make sense. But then there's places that kind of surprised me, like traditionally, like Las Vegas has pretty attractive real estate in the past. And boom, they're, they're, they're way up there. Nashville's way up there. Yeah, that right? doesn't surprise me, Nashville. You know, so. there's some other places that are way up there. Oh, of course, a lot of places in Washington State and California, the state of California. But um, yeah, I just wanted to put a bow on that. I, I promised uh, listeners and viewers that I would I'd bring that topic up. Yeah, that's interesting, especially uh, to see what's going to happen with interest rates and mortgage rates over the next six months to a year because mortgage rates have uh, continued to climb. So yeah. Um, well, anything else before we leave it there for the week, Matt? Um, no, I, I think that uh, only other comment I got is June 14th, next Federal Reserve meeting. A lot of eyes on that. Anticipation is no action item on interest rates. Mm -hmm. But I was reading yesterday that they might be signaling towards uh, possibly increasing rates at a meeting later this year, which uh, was not priced in just about a month ago. Yep. Um, so they may not be done raising yet. Yeah, you know, they might be talking tough still. Again, even if they don't do it, the threat of doing another, you know, I'd almost rather have them do a quarter than say we're done. Mm -hmm. You know, let's Agreed. just get it past you. Yep. 
Well, thanks everyone for joining us on episode number 203. Uh, We hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and we'll be back with you next week for episode 204. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.